Today's Bible reading will be from Revelation chapter 5, the whole chapter, I think. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Wendy, good morning everyone. It's uh, lovely to be here with you and such a privilege to open up uh, such a wonderful passage of scripture. Uh, Why don't we pray and ask for God's help uh, as we go through it. Uh, Father God, We thank you so much for this picture into the throne room of God. Uh, We thank you for the wonderful uh, reality behind our world, that it's all about you. It's all about worship um, of, of the God who made everything and the land that was slain. Father, help us to understand it. Challenge us, encourage us, and change us, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as human beings, the instinct to worship is built into every one of us. Even in the Western world, which, as we all know, has become so secular, if people don't worship God, then they'll find something else to worship. In the 20th century, dictators very quickly discovered that if they set themselves up as godlike figures, people would worship them. In our culture, people without God often worship sport, don't they? 
I suggested last week that our whole culture makes an idol out of money. Australia worships materialism. Even in the church, even when we have God, we can still invent ways to worship that aren't from God at all. Francis Xavier was a famous Spanish evangelist in the 16th century. Uh, He went to lots of different places. He ended up dying in Goa in India. Um, Not long after his death, a devout woman uh, by the name of Isabel de Caron decided that Francis would be really helpful for her in a quiet times in a worship for God. Uh, Some people use Bible reading notes uh, or a journal to help them uh, worship God, but Isabel thought that Francis's little toe was what she really needed. Uh, And so she bit it off and took it home with her to Portugal. Now this started quite a fad. Uh, Pretty soon there was less and less of poor old Francis in Goa as he got spread around the world. Uh, A forearm and a hand ended up in Rome. A shoulder blade landed in Macau. And his other hand was discovered in Japan. All taken by people who thought that a decaying corpse was a good idea to help them in their worship. Worship is central to us as human beings. We're forever inventing new ways of worship and new ways to go about worshipping. But Revelation 4 and 5 tells us what true worship is all about. That it's centred on God as the one who is worthy of our worship, the one who created all things. And the Lamb who saved us by giving his life for us and shedding his blood. And we'll see that this amazing picture of the throne room of God shows us what really matters. Our whole purpose of being, our whole reason for being centres on worshipping the one who made us and saved us. Uh, and so that's, what we, that's where we're headed today. Uh, we'll be mainly looking at chapter 5. Um, this four and five is actually a unit that we could look at the whole lot of uh, if we had time. But we cover that in CGs if you're in a community group. But just a quick review of chapter four to set the scene. In chapter four, John is given a scene, uh, given a picture of God sitting on his throne. He's surrounded by 24 elders representing the 12 tribes of Israel and, the, tw- and, and the, the other 12 elders representing God's people uh, in New Testament times. Then there are four creatures around the throne representing the whole variety of creation. And they're all falling down in worship. Have a look at verse 11 with me. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things And by your will, they were created and have their being. Worship in chapter 4 of the creator God. And then we come to chapter 5. The scene is the same. It's still a throne room of God. The 24 elders are still there. The four creatures are still there. The drama of this chapter begins when God holds a scroll in his right hand and an angel in a thundering voice asks, and this is our first point, the question, who will open this scroll. Who will open the scroll? We're introduced to a scroll that has writing on both sides and is sealed with seven seals in verse 1. 
After the angel asks a question, he's met with silence. Pick it up in verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, over the years, as I've read this passage, I've often wondered, why did John weep? Why was he so sad? What's a big deal over opening a scroll? But it will be helpful for us to understand what a scroll represented. In the Old Testament, there are a number of times when God gives a scroll to his prophets. They contain the message of what God will do in the future. They represented an unfolding of God's purposes for his people. And that's what we have here. And what is God's plan likely to be? Well, it's related to the picture that we've just seen in the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, a voice said to John, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And then we have the elders and creatures worshipping around the throne. We're not told when this will happen, but it seems like it's going to happen sometime after John is given the vision. And the whole picture of God ruling and creation and people praising around the throne are the fulfilment of God's plan. But it seems like God's purposes, this scene, can only come about if the scroll is opened. Remember that chapters 4 and 5 flow straight on from chapters 2 and 3 that we looked at last week. The letters to the seven churches. Remember that five out of the seven churches are struggling with sin of some sort. And the two good churches, uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were under the pump and battered and bruised by persecution. So all seven churches are struggling in some way in a kind of a David versus Goliath battle against the world. The future doesn't look too flash for them. Persecution, sin, mess. But then suddenly chapter 4 shows them what the future will actually be. No Roman emperor, no persecution, no sin, no lukewarm churches. As John was taken up into the throne room of God, he would have longed for this reality to come about. And so he wept when there was no one found who was worthy to open the scroll. But then suddenly one of the elders pipes up. He declares that there is one who can open the scroll. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, this lion of, Ju of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. These are wonderful Old Testament images of a conqueror. The Lion of Judah comes from Genesis 49 when, when Jacob blesses all his sons. He comes to Judah and he calls him a lion's cub who would rule and people would obey him. And the root of David is taken from Isaiah ch chapter 11. It's a picture of the Messiah. Let's pick it up from Isaiah 11 verse 3. The Spirit of God will rest on him 
the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. God's Messiah, a king who will judge and rule in righteousness. A lion who has conquered. He is the one who can open the scroll. And as John prepares to see a majestic, fearsome king in the form of a lion, he sees what in verse 6? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. But wait a minute. This isn't the way the script is meant to go. Instead of a lion, it ends up being a lamb who is worthy to open up the scroll. And that's our second point. Now, there are a lot of animals in the world that represent power, strength, ferociousness, kingship. It comes with ruling and conquering. But a lamb isn't one of them. A lamb doesn't get a Guernsey on that list. I grew up on a sheep farm and I have first-hand experience of seeing what a little lamb is like. Every year about mid-August was lambing season when the ewes would have their lambs. Many of those lambs end up dying, uh, a lot of it due to the stupidity of, their, of the ewes. Uh, some are just abandoned by their mothers. They have a baby and then promptly forget that they have a baby. They end up dying in the cold. Some are taken by foxes. Uh, every year we would bring orphaned lambs home with us and feed them and warm them up. And sometimes the process would take weeks and weeks and they would teeter on the edge of, of de life and death. Lambs are one of the most defenceless, helpless creatures there are. When they lose their mothers, if we didn't rescue them within a very short period of time, there was no chance of them surviving. But here in Revelation 5, we have the most unexpected twist in the script possible. The lion turns out to be a half-dead lamb. The conqueror isn't a warrior who causes his enemies to melt in fear, but the most helpless of animals. And then the key to understanding how it is that this lamb conquers. Have a look at verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And continues on verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The lamb is worthy to take the scroll because he was slain. And with his blood, he purchased for God people from every tribe and nation on earth. Now, of course, we know that the lamb is Jesus. It was in his death on the cross that he defeated death for humanity. It was with his blood as the lamb who was sacrificed that he paid for the sins of the world. 
In the greatest irony in human history, Satan, the great enemy of God, or Eric, depending what you like to call him, was defeated by the very action that he thought was the winning move, killing the Son of God. You see, in God's world, things are not always as they appear to be. A lamb who is really a king, a criminal's death on a cross defeating the powers of darkness. A poor downtrodden church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, gaining a crown of life to rule with the king. God's way is to bring victory through weakness. And so for us too. For you who are struggling with sick parents, children with chronic anxiety, pressures at work, Things that seem to suck the very life out of you. If only God would heal those I'm caring for. If only work stresses didn't keep me awake at night. No. God delights in showing his glory in the mess of our turmoil. As we show fruit of patience, as we show his love in little seemingly inconsequential ways, But to God, they're not inconsequential. We may appear defeated. We may feel defeated. But in God's world, things are not what they appear to be. Like the lamb who was slain, who is actually victorious. Notice that this victory is something that's already been won. Verse 9 again. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Notice that that's past tense. You purchased. You already have done it. It's past tense. The price has already been fully paid. That means everything that has been done for us to belong to God. We are completely saved. There's nothing left to do. And none of it is up to us. It's already been done when Jesus bought us with his blood. And then we see the results of that in verse 10. You have made them, and that's us, to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Again, past tense, you have been made to be a kingdom and priests. We saw this back in chapter 1, if you remember. We are a kingdom because the king already does rule. Now, there's a future aspect to that rule that we see at the end of verse 10. And they will reign on the earth. That is us, the kingdom and priests. That will happen after the final defeat of Satan and all of God's enemies, which is fleshed out in the coming chapters in Revelation that we'll see. But for now, in chapters 4 and 5, the emphasis is on the victory that has already been achieved. The lamb is counted worthy to open the scroll because he has died, because he has purchased human beings by his blood. And his death is also the way that he has conquered his enemies, which is brought out back in verse 5. And they will reign. Oh, sorry, one more. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
The fact that this victory is past tense is monumentally important to the book of Revelation. And I want you to remember that if you take nothing else from the book of Revelation, remember what Jesus has done already by his blood. Remember John's readers, struggling churches facing opposition from all sides. Opposition from within, false teachers, people leading them into sin. Opposition from outside, from jealous Jews, from the might of the Roman Empire. God wants them to know that things are not as they appear. Chapters 4 and 5 are like pulling back a curtain and showing the hidden reality of the world. That God is on the throne. That Jesus has conquered sin and death and those who oppose God's people. Yes, the churches still face opposition, but it's only a desperate skirmishing by a defeated enemy. The war has already been won. The future is certain. They will reign on the earth with the king. And that brings us to our third point. Because God is king, because he is the creator of all things, because of what the Lamb has done in conquering, at the centre of the purpose of the universe, what really matters is worship of God and the Lamb. And we see that in the way that chapters 4 and 5 build to a crescendo, to a climax around worship around the throne of God. Back in chapter 4, you notice that it's the 24 elders and the four creatures worshipping. Then in chapter 5, the numbers begin to swell. Have a look at verse, chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Now, my brain is too small to calculate how big a number that is, but it's big. It's a big number. It has more zeros on the end than I can imagine. The image is a mind-bogglingly big number of angels around that throne. And then the numbers swell yet again in verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. That's as complete a picture of all creation coming together to worship as it's possible to get. Every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and on the sea. All focus completely on worship of God and the Lamb. Remember that we said that this is a picture of the hidden reality of God's universe? It's a pulling back of the curtain to reveal what life is really about. And it's all about worship. Worship of the one who made us. Worship of the one who saved us. Chapters 4 and 5 are stripping back of all the stuff that we're immersed in in our world to show what really matters to, in God's world. It's like looking under the bonnet of a car. I don't know um, if you're a rev head or not. Uh, a car can look as fancy as it likes on the outside, but when you lift up the bonnet, 
you see the reality of what the car is really like when you look at the engine. Revelation 4 and 5 is like lifting the bonnet and looking at the engine of God's world. The passage is a reminder to the seven churches of what really matters. God wants to remind them that he has conquered sin. He has dealt with the ones who are persecuting him and he has dealt with death itself so that they need no longer fear it. And he wants to remind them that their purpose as a church is worship of the one who stands among them. And friends, this is a passage that is a reminder to us about what really matters. That the lamb who was slain has won. It often doesn't feel like that, does it? I don't know if you're like me, but I often feel like it's often my sin that wins. How many times have you perhaps struggled with porn and vowed never to look at porn on the internet again, but then you give in again? How many times have I resolved not to respond to my kids out of anger or frustration, but to deal patiently with them, only to lose it yet again? Or it can feel like the world wins against you. Another broken night's sleep when your baby is waking up again. Your boss at work seeming to have it in for you and just being narky and vindictive for the sake of it. It feels like someone's loaded the dice and is rolling them against you. It doesn't feel like God's in control. But Jesus wants you to know that we don't really get to see, sorry, that the hidden reality that we don't really get to see is that he is on the throne. He has won the war and your future with him in his kingdom is certain. The picture behind into the throne room of God shows that life is really about worship of the one who sits on the throne. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about your career. It's not about your family or your marriage. If you love God and trust in him, your face is one of the thousands upon thousands gathering around the throne in Revelation 5. That is our purpose. That's what life is actually about. That ought to be what we live for now. And that is definitely our future that we are preparing for in this life. Think of it a, a bit like running a marathon. I've run a few marathons. Um, on the road, in that race, you've got to focus everything that you have on that finish line or you will never get there. Everything I wore, everything I did in preparation, everything I did on the day were all centred upon getting over that finish line. In Beijing, one, one year, it was about four degrees on the day of the marathon, and I started wear, out started the race wearing an old top because it was so cold. But about a kilometre into it, I just took it off and threw it away because I didn't want it to be a hindrance as I ran. I want to finish off by asking the question, are the things you're doing helping you or hindering you in worshipping Jesus? That should be the yardstick we use to assess everything we do.
Now, before I forget, I'll ask the band to come up, which I always forget to do, so I'll do it now. But just to finish off, I want to focus on two areas, work or uni and family. Firstly, work or study. Now, I get it that for many of us, work is just work. You don't get a lot of choice about hours or even the job you're doing. But for some of us, we actually do have a choice. Should I keep going with a boring job or look to upskill and change jobs? Do I persevere with a high-pressure job that sucks up my time and energy but pays really well and gives me good promotion opportunities? Friends, I want to suggest that if work is stopping you from making CGs or church on Sunday, if it's so energy-sapping or time-sapping that it leaves you with nothing for your family or the church, or to investing in relationships, then it may be time to look for another job. And making career decisions based on money and security rather than ministry is warping our priorities. It's making work into an idol rather than worshipping God. And if you're a uni student who struggles to make it to CGs or church because you're busy, can I suggest that you gently, but can I suggest that you take a long, hard look at your priorities? I get it that life gets busy with assignments and exams, but no matter how busy we are, at the end of the day, we still do the things that we really want to do. We do the things that we really want to do. Then family. Can I say that I think we often use family as an excuse for not serving God to our full potential? And I want to start by pointing the finger at myself uh, in this too. Now, I'm not saying to neglect our family or to abandon them. Of course not. I, I would never suggest that. I'm not saying to parents with young children that we expect you here at church every week, no matter, not, no matter what, no. I remember what it was like when the kids would take it in turns to get colds and coughs or waking up like a zombie because one of the kids was vomiting all night. I'm not talking about those things. No, I'm talking about the times that we can use family as something to hide behind for not getting involved, for not taking risks. Now, I realise I'm treading on shaky ground here because this is a predominantly Asian church where family is rightly seen as being so important. And I understand there are all sorts of complexities involved with honouring parents, etc. But still, I think there are times when some of you should uh, take risks when you don't because of family. Maybe it's looking to serve overseas on the mission field. Maybe it's changing to a lower paid job to free up more time for ministry. Maybe if you have adult kids, it's encouraging them towards full-time ministry rather than wanting them to get a high paid job and a secure job. In these areas, work, uni, family and every other area of our lives, we need to keep the big picture in mind. 
What really matters is how we are worshipping the one who is on the throne with all of our lives. Is what you're doing day in and day out preparing me, preparing you for the day that you are one of those faces bowing down before the throne, crying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Well, let's respond, friends, by, by singing. Uh, that's a great way to worship God. So let's stand and sing.